Let's pray. Lord, this morning, um, first we want to thank you for answering prayers from last week, giving us the reminder that when we pray, it's not just lobbing up phrases that we hope get caught by someone, but it's an encounter with the living God. And so I'm thankful that, um, that you hear our prayers week in and week out, and I'm thankful that you respond to them. We, specifically this morning, I thank you um, for healing for Andrew Money and him getting uh, out of the hospital and uh, getting back at it. Um, thank you for hearing that prayer and answering it. There were others, and um, that is the case every time. So we thank, thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, I pray uh, for honesty this morning. Um, even as we just sang about this tendency that we have to wander and this tendency that we have to not allow the gospel to have its intended effect in our lives, we, we sang we're prone to wander. Uh, Lord, we feel that we're prone to leave the God we love. Take our hearts, take and seal it for thy courts above. Lord, I pray that we mean that. I pray that we're not just a congregation that's a choir singing words off of a page or off the screen, but that we're, we're, we're a wholehearted choir of people that, that really want to be honest. Uh, we need honesty this morning. Lord, I pray uh, for uh, a fellow church um, as we do each week. We pray for Wesley United Methodist, and I pray particularly for Pastor Gene Wisdom. I pray that their time this morning is sweet and encouraging. I pray that his time in the word with you this week has been fruitful, and I pray that you would bless their congregation. Um, I'm thankful uh, that we have so many different brothers and sisters in our community, and I'm thankful for Wesley United Methodist. Lord, I pray also just for our entire city council. As I was looking at all their names this morning, it just didn't feel fitting to pull one out of the list this morning, so uh, it feels more appropriate to pray for them all. There's lots of things going on in our city. There's lots of movement. There's lots of growth. There's lots of decisions to be made, and I pray that you would help them to collectively make wise decisions um, that contribute to the well-being of this community. Uh, I do pray that um, this community would be a community where the gospel goes forward, and I pray that even the decisions they make, whether they know it or not at the time, uh, would aid that and would assist that. Lord, we pray um, this morning that you would give us um, clarity in Romans 1, um, that you would allow us to see what's on the page and that it would have an impact on our lives. Uh, we thank you that we get to gather and have this time together week in and week out. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 1 if you haven't already turned there. Um, I love the book of Romans. Um, when I was <clears throat> a younger youth minister here over a decade ago, um, I, I, I took the, the youth through Romans, and it was one of the most significant times of my life. Uh, I had no idea what I was getting into, but the things that God did and the things that he showed us through it were just so significant. And so to get to preach through it is, uh, is a privilege. Um, here at Crosspoint Fellowship, Ben McGraw does the majority of the preaching. He, he preached on the unity of Christ this last few weeks. Um, but in Romans, we've had a couple times over the last six months to engage it. So we had two sermons in June and two in September, and now we're going to have one this week and next week. So I kind of want to give you all a heads up so you all can be ready and, uh, and aware of what we're going to be engaging. This week, we're going to be looking at how the gospel changes us, and next week, we're going to be looking at how the gospel makes us debtors, how the gospel makes us debtors. So the title of today's message is How the Gospel Changes Us. And I want to make it abundantly clear that when I say us, I don't just mean us who are sitting in this room. I mean us as in everyone who has ever been changed by Christ through the gospel of God. In our Wednesday night study this week, we considered that there are over 7.125 billion people on planet earth right now. And of those 7.125 billion people, over a third, over 2.3 billion, claim to be Christians. That's in, in comparison to every religion, and, and in fact, religions that existed far before Christianity. I mean, we're only 2,000 years into this thing. In 1910, there were only 600 million Christians on earth. And so there's something about the effect of the gospel 
that really grabs hold of people and it changes them. And it doesn't quit working after a while. I mean, 100 years ago, there were 600 million Christians, and today there's over 2.3 billion. Granted, the population has increased, but so is the population of believers. And it's because of the effect of the gospel. So when I say us, how the gospel changes us, that's who I'm talking about. The over 2.3 billion Christians who have currently been changed by the gospel and all those, every single believer who existed before the present day. That's a lot of people that have been changed by this message. The pervasive effect of the gospel exists because of the personal effect of the gospel. It's the kind of thing that affects massive groups of people by affecting every individual within it. So that doesn't promote this individualism. It promotes this deep, profound effect on every single member of every single church within every single place on earth. It reaches many because it affects deeply. So look at Romans chapter 1, verse 8 through 15. Paul is writing to the church in Rome. We've already gone through his introduction. And then it's, it's pretty normal in Paul's letters that he would have an introduction, and then, then he would have sort of a little thankful section. And I read over it the first time, and I didn't think we'd spend much time, and I didn't think it was all that deep, but that was my fault, not the Scripture's fault. I needed to just keep reading and keep digging because what we find here is the significant effect of the gospel. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. He's writing to the church in Rome. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son that without ceasing I mention you Always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So there's a little background that we need as we dig into this letter. We've, we've looked at it in the first four sermons, but the first two were six months ago. The next two were three months ago. So we need a little refresher course. So I encourage you to, to take notes. Um, if you don't take notes, I just encourage you to become a note taker. It's just that simple. Um, you might be thinking, I'm not a note taker. I just encourage you to become one. It, it, I can't remember squat from a Sunday morning if I don't write it down. When I sit down on Tuesday to consider my walking in the sermon, I don't remember it if I don't write it down. So if you have a photographic memory and you can remember everything, um, then you don't have to be a note taker. But if, if you're like everyone else, I encourage you to be a note taker. This letter was written from Corinth in AD 57. It's important to know that Paul is not in Rome right now. Sometimes we read these letters to Ephesus, to Galatia, to Rome, to Corinth, and we think that they were there when they wrote the letter, but he actually isn't there. And in fact, he's never been there. And he's writing it from Corinth. Now, remember, we know the Corinthian church was pretty messed up. They were doing all kinds of crazy stuff, getting drunk during the supper and suing each other and fighting each other and all kinds of inappropriate relationships. They were messed up. So Paul's serving diligently with the Corinthian church, and man, they need the help because they're, they're, they got some pretty sideways stuff going on, but he's writing to the church in Rome in AD 57. Rome was the capital city, and it was the center for pagan worship. The church in Rome, so what we considered in our first few sermons was that Rome has a history, the church in Rome has a history, and Paul has a history. The church in Rome was only around 20 years old at this point, and it was started by the Jews who had returned from Pentecost at Jerusalem. <clears throat> so these Jews in Rome, there's Jews all over the area, the Jews in Rome would annually make the 1,432-mile trek to Jerusalem every year for Pentecost. And in around AD 37 was when uh, 
in Acts chapter 2, where we see Peter's sermon at Pentecost, and they all gather, and they, the, tongue, the fire falls on them as tongues, and, and they hear the truth of the gospel in their own languages, and something amazing happens. And sometimes we can read that and be like, did that really happen, that all these people start really hearing you know, this, the gospel in their own languages? It seems pretty, pretty remarkable. The church exists in Rome. The proof is in the pudding. Something happened at that Pentecost event where they went and and the truth of the gospel that had not yet spread, it went and it spread. And so these Jews, 20 years before, who were um, in in Jerusalem, uh, went, uh, they went to Jerusalem, came back to Rome, and upon their return, what they did was they did what the gospel said. And they shared the message of the gospel and began to establish the church. And in establishing that church, as was fitting for the gospel, Gentiles, non-Jews, began to be converted. And this was unprecedented. In AD 49, Emperor Claudius saw these Jews preaching the gospel and saw this church, this Christian Jewish church thing with these Gentiles growing. So he said, you know what, I'm not going to have this. And he, he, um, he wanted to squash the growth by expelling all of the Jews from Rome. And many of them left. But while they were gone, the church didn't die. In fact, the church continued to grow through the Gentiles. So by the time Paul wrote this letter, many had returned, making up a church of Jews and Gentiles who differed greatly. So here's the deal. History is not always super, super exciting. I just took a history course in seminary that was really super boring. I mean, put me to sleep on almost every lecture. I'm assuming my prof doesn't listen to these sermons, but if he does... Um, thanks for the nighttime uh, remedy there. Um, th- History is important, especially when we're considering why someone would write a letter to someone that they've never met from a place where they have plenty to do. So, so what was the church like? Well, it was made up of Jews and Gentiles who differed greatly, and it was a young church, and um, it was a church that was unprecedented because they were gathering together and breaking bread together. So Paul's ministry ambitions, as we read through this, are significant. He's in Corinth. He wants to go to Rome, but only as a stop on the way to Spain. He wants to gather this offering. He wants to unite the Jews and the Gentiles who are differing so greatly in Rome. I mean, Paul is one of those guys that you look at and you're like, just don't even talk to me about that guy. He's, he's so ambitious. He just has so much good stuff going on. And it's not enough. He's got like good stuff that he's done, great stuff that's going on, and amazing stuff that he wants to do in the future. He's a go-getter. And so what he sees here What he knows is that in order to fulfill his calling, a healthy church in Rome is very important. He's writing this letter because he wants the church in Rome to be healthy because it's important to his calling. He needs them to be healthy and he needs a good relationship with them as the one called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. So this is why the gospel of God is Paul's introduction in this letter. It's his identity. It's his ministry plan. Because both the Jews and the Gentiles are suspicious of him, right? The Jews are saying, hey, I thought you were a Jew, but now we're Jews who have accepted Christ. And the Gentiles are saying, hey, real quick, aren't you, aren't you one of the guys who was killing the Jews because they were turning to Christ? And so Paul is trying to engage people who would be wildly suspicious of him. And so he's saying, your gospel is my gospel. I want to make it very clear. I was converted by the gospel. I continue in the gospel. My ministry plan for you is the gospel, and I have no plans to stray from the gospel. And rest assured, we're talking about the same gospel. So look at verse 8. In verse 8, we begin to see how the gospel changes us. So we're going to first look at how it changed Paul. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Paul is genuinely thankful for other believers. Paul is genuinely thankful for other believers. We have six points that we're going to consider this morning. I really have grown to love the one-point sermons where it's like, what do we, okay, bam, we'll take that with us, we can remember that. I can't get around it. There's six points this morning that we're going to get to. So take notes. But this first one, it, it's, it's not all that impressive because, you know, really, he, he likes believers. That's the deep, profound wisdom of this. He likes believers. Yes, he's thankful for believers. And we're going to dig into this a little bit. He's genuinely thankful for believers and not just the ones that he jives with or that he relates to. 
he's not only thankful for, for the believers that he's familiar with. He hasn't ever met any of these people that he's writing to, yet he sounds to be wildly thankful for them and eager to go to them. He's never met them. They've never had any conversations. All they have in common is the gospel. And he has contributed nothing toward their faith. He didn't plant or water at all regarding the church of Rome. But because of the effect of the gospel on them, and because of their faithful response to the gospel, and because of the effect of the gospel in his own life, he says that every time he prays, he thanks God for them. Paul's a guy who prays a lot, and he says, every time I pray, I thank my God for you guys. Particularly because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Particularly because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Now, I want to make sure that we see this phrase, your faith is proclaimed in all the world, for what it is. It would be easy to sensationalize this and make it seem as though Paul is saying, I'm thankful for you because you're turning Rome upside down. Your spectacular display of faithfulness is causing all of Rome to turn from their idolatry and accept Christ. That's a train that I can get on board. That's a team I want to be a part of. I praise God because you're changing Rome completely with your faith. That is not what's happening. They have not turned Rome upside down. In fact, there's a bishop who wrote of Rome at the time. Rome, she was the eternal city which had given them peace, the fount of law, the center of civilization, the mecca of poets and orators and artists, while being at the same time a home of every kind of idolatrous worship. So they weren't turning Rome upside down, but they were existing faithfully within a very hard context. So their faith that had been proclaimed throughout all the world was not one of this sensational worldwide influence where everyone accepts it and no one's lost anymore as much as it was small house church kind of faith where Jews from Pentecost came home to Rome and actually began to share Christ with others. They received something remarkable, the gospel, and they went to Rome and shared it with the Gentiles who they now broke bread with. This was unprecedented. People were hanging out together who had never before, be hung, uh, who had never before hung out together. People were interacting together and in fact enjoying one another, though they had their troubles, who had never hung out and enjoyed each other before because of the gospel. So they were small in number, but the gospel was achieving something through them that had never before been experienced throughout the world. That is the faith that's being proclaimed, a faith that exists in small numbers, surrounded by idolatry and pagan worship and daily temptation to put more stock in the present with less focus on the eternal. They faithfully exist in comparably small numbers in a setting that's full of temptations and distraction. And for that, Paul is genuinely thankful. They're still just as screwed up as any of us are. They still have their differences. The Jews and Gentiles still are always guilty of looking at one another and saying, you need to be more like us. No, you need to be more like us. But the profound impact of the gospel on them made Paul genuinely thankful for them in their faith. So Paul is genuinely thankful for other believers. But what I want us to see is that Paul's gospel thankfulness towards other people doesn't just exist as a feeling. Paul's gospel thankfulness towards others doesn't just exist as a feeling. Look at verses 9 and 11. 9 through 11, for God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I mention you. I mean, he is serious. He wants them to understand, I really do pray for you. God's my witness. I pray for you a lot, every time. I pray for you. I'm thankful for you. He's, he's emphatic about it. Always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you. Usually we long to see people we've already seen, right? Has anyone ever had the experience, oh, I long to see so-and-so who I've never met and have no relationship with at all. Usually we long to see people that we give a rip about. We long to see people that we've had a good experience with. He's had no experience with them, yet I long to see you. 
that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Paul is thankful for them, so Paul prays for them. While doing work in Corinth, he remains attentive to other places where God is working. He's really committed where he's at, but where he's at isn't all that matters. He knows there's more gospel work going on. He's attentive to what God's doing over there and over there and over there. And he's not just attentive, he's thankful and he's prayerful. He remains attentive to other places where God's working and responds in prayer for those faithful people that he hasn't even met yet. So he doesn't just pray for the unfaithful. He prays for the faithful as well. And this particular prayer is that God might open a way for him to go to them. Because faith goes. Faith travels. Faith has feet. It doesn't just exist in concept. It plays out in real life, particularly in relationships with both lost people and saved people. Look at verses 11 through 13. We've already heard of our long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. It's a humble prayer, isn't it? Of this prayer, John Stott notes, it's a humble, tentative petition. He doesn't just name it, claim it, and move. It's humble, tentative. He presumes neither to impose his will on God nor claim to know what God's will may be. Instead, Paul submits his will to God's. It's very important for us to see this. He really wants to go to Rome, but God has him in Corinth. And so rather than imposing his will on God or claiming to know what God's will is, he submits his will to God and says, I want to come, but I've been prevented. So I'm praying about it and I'm continuing to serve where I am. This is another effect of the gospel. Paul knows that God has him in Corinth for a reason. And though Paul deeply desires to go to Rome, he won't abandon his post until God has made it clear that it's time for him to go through a door that God has opened. The things that have prevented Paul are most likely ministry endeavors. It's not just calamity and mishaps. He's really busy with ministry. So he's like, I've been prevented from coming to minister to you because I'm ministering to a lot of people over here. So the things that have prevented are ministry endeavors. But what I want us to see here is this. Look at Paul. Paul has ministry goals that have not yet lined up with God's timing. And that's okay. If you have ministry goals, I don't want to get to the application too quickly, but if you have ministry goals that don't line up with God's timing, that doesn't necessarily mean they're not supposed to be your ministry goals, your hopes, the, your, the things you want to pursue. He has these goals that have not yet lined up with God's timing. And rather than complaining, rather than falling into discontentment, rather than taking it out on the boneheads at the church in Corinth, rather than abandoning the Corinthians, Paul is thankful, prayerful, and continuing to serve with his eyes wide open, knowing that God always has a bigger plan than Paul. That's, Paul, that's how Paul has been affected by the gospel. He has these goals and these ambitions that are lofty, but God hadn't opened the door, so the goals don't match up with God's timing, and so he's serving wholeheartedly where he is, with his eyes wide open, knowing God always has a bigger plan than I have. So Paul's in Corinth, eager to go to Rome, but only as a stop on the way to Spain. His eyes are open, and he's eager to visit the Roman brothers and sisters. But on this visit, something that we have to see is that Paul doesn't aim to visit them empty-handed. He wants to, as it says right here uh, in, I think it's verse 11... He wants to impart to them some spiritual gift. So Paul's not saying, I just want to come hang out because you're gospel people and I'm gospel people. He, he wants to take something to them, particularly he says, I want to impart to you some spiritual gift. A spiritual 
gift. Now, some have sensationalized this verse to make it sound as though he had one of the charismata, the charismatic gifts, that somehow Paul would go to, to Rome and supernaturally impart to them. But that's not likely because everywhere else that that happens in every other passage, such gifts are only bestowed by God, by Christ, and by the Spirit. So what are we talking about here? What is clear in what he's talking about in this gift that he wants to take them, the spiritual gift? Paul is convinced that they have a need and that he has a gift. It's not arrogant. It's God's equipping. It's the effect of someone who has the gospel, even if the people you're going to have the gospel. He, he, he makes it clear. He understands that the people have a need and he has a gift. But here's what I love about this. Remember, Paul hasn't met any of these people. There's no possible way that Paul has a lot of spiritual insight into what these people are dealing with. Anytime you meet with people, you begin to gain insight into what, how you can pray for them, right? I mean, that's sort of the natural thing. You, you can pray for someone, but then when you meet them and you talk to them and you hear what's going on in their lives, you can pray for them in a completely different way. You can minister to them in a completely different way. I had a group of people I met with two weeks ago that I didn't know any of them, but I had prayed for them lots. After meeting with them, the way that I was able to pray for them changed completely because I had insight into what their spiritual needs actually were, and it was good, and it was edifying, and it changed the way that I pray for them. It, in fact, has heightened my awareness of what they deal with every day. Paul's never met these people. He hasn't contributed to their ministry at all. So Paul is convinced they have a need and convinced that he has a gift for them. But Paul, there's no way that he could possibly know what their spiritual needs are. But he has the gospel. That's, that's where he's at. I know you have a need. I have no idea what your need is. But I have the gospel and I want to get there quick. Reminds me of like a grandpa with like the multi-tool on his belt. You know, what's wrong? Oh, they got this. All right, I'll, I've got the multi-tool. We'll take care of it. It doesn't matter what it is. This will fix it. This will tend to it. And here, man, Paul's like, I've got the gospel, and so I'm coming. <laughs> Look at what he says in verse 15. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He does not need knowledge of a particular shortfall. He doesn't need a list, of, a list of tasks to be motivated to go. Remember, faith goes. Faith has feet. He doesn't need a list of tasks to be motiv motivated to go and visit these believers in Rome. He just needs the gospel. That's what the gospel does. It makes people eager to go, even if there's not crystal clarity about what it is that they need to do once they get there. Do you have everything you need? Munich trip people? We have the gospel, right? It makes us ready. It makes us flexible. I'm a total control freak. I hate planning trips where we don't know what's going on. But isn't that sort of a lot of what happens if, if we're dealing with the gospel? Well, what are you guys going to do on this day and this day? How much is it going to cost? Who are the people? Do we have a connection? Blah, 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 blah. And I want to plan, 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 plan. But the reality is... Paul had no idea what their spiritual needs are. He didn't have a task list when he, you know, as he endeavored to go on this trip. He had the gospel. And the gospel made him ready, and the gospel made him flexible. And even then, his motivation is not just that they need the gospel. Part of his motivation in going is that they already have the gospel. It's just this interesting little section of thankfulness, the things that he's thankful for and praying for. He doesn't just want to go because he has the gospel. He wants to go because they also have the gospel. His words are that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Mutual encouragement can only happen when there's genuine teachability in the life of a believer. One of the effects of the gospel on Paul is that it made him teachable. It didn't make him a know-it-all. It didn't make him the kind of person that only had something to say and never had something to listen to. It made him teachable. It's almost just as the words came out of his mouth in the letter, I want to come to you to impart to you some spiritual gift, and I need to hear from you. You guys are believers now. You guys have a church. I want to hear about what's going on in Rome. I want to understand the details and the nuances of your day-to-day -day life and ministry. I want to understand the challenges. I'm here to listen, not just to talk. 
Because the gospel creates teachability in God's people. Teachability is evidence that the gospel has changed us. So whenever God opens the door, here's the big picture for Paul. Whenever God finally opens the door for him to go from Corinth to Rome, Paul will go with a thankful heart, full of prayer, equipped with the gospel, and humble teachability. That's the gospel reality for Paul as he's serving in Corinth and writing to Rome. So we've considered what the passage says. That's something that we try to do around here. It's, it's easy to read a Bible verse and say, okay, what does this mean for us? What can I do with this today? But that's too fast. You have to look and consider what it says before we consider what it says to us. We've looked at what it says, and now we're going to consider what it says to us. And there are six application points that we can take away with us today. And I encourage you to write them down because you're going to need to think over these things. I prayed this morning about truth because what, I, what my hope is is that our minds and our hearts would be so focused on truth that you wouldn't be convicted just by guilt, that you wouldn't be convicted by you know, something that, that hits you hard, but that you'd be convicted by truth that hits you hard, by truth that informs your life. So let's consider Paul's life and how that might translate to us as we apply truth. The first thing is faith means being genuinely thankful for other believers. Faith means being genuinely thankful for other believers. So I'll just ask the question. Please don't answer out loud. It'll embarrass everybody. Are you thankful for other believers? Some of us are jealous of other believers, especially when it comes to matters of the faith, right? It's easy. You see someone who's moving along and seems to be doing well. I'm jealous. Are you thankful for other believers? Some of us are jealous of other believers. Some of us are intimidated by others. Some of us are annoyed by other believers, right? Can we just be honest for a minute? If I'm on an airplane going somewhere, you know, if I'm going to be honest, the last person I want to talk to me is a believer. Because now we got all the church stories and all the things that you're doing and I'm doing. That's what Paul found important. But it's so easy for us to become people that act as though somehow these fellow brothers and sisters in Christ are a hindrance to our walk with Christ. That's not the way it's supposed to be. We're supposed to be thankful for other believers. Not jealous of them, not intimidated by them, not annoyed by them, but thankful. The reason I bring that up is because if you are annoyed or jealous or intimidated, I want you to deal with that this morning. The gospel helps you to deal with that. There's such hope for you to be transformed and changed because of the gospel. So I bring those up not to say, you're a guilty loser if you don't love all the believers, even when they're annoying, but so that you will look at the gospel and say, okay, I need to be thankful for other believers. I need to see something of merit in the relationship that we have with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Many of us have heard this old sad adage Um, Ministry would be a whole lot easier if it wasn't for all the people. I remember hearing that when I was young, not understanding it, and then in my first year of ministry here, I said it. Oh, I get it now. Now that I'm dedicating my life to walk with these people, I get it. It'd be a lot easier if it wasn't for all the people. Ministry would be a lot... I want to establish this clearly. Ministry would be so much easier if not for the people. But it wouldn't be ministry. It would change whatever it is you're talking about. What I meant when I said that as an arrogant early 20-something doing ministry who still had no idea how hard it would get in the coming years, what I meant was I would much rather sit in my own office and read books that I like and grow in my understanding of things that are spiritual than serve other people. That's what I meant. Thankfully, I didn't stay there or else I definitely wouldn't be here 13 years later. But the gospel has an impact like that. It helps us to persevere because we can be genuinely thankful for others. Or maybe we're only thankful for the Christians that we jive with and relate to. Oh yeah, I love Christians who think exactly like I do. Maybe we only are thankful for the Christians that we jive with and relate to. So it comes out like this, right? As long as you believe blank about baptism... We can hang. Or as long as you believe blank about the Trinity, 
or as long as you believe blank about church leadership or eschatology or ecclesiology or this author or that author or this network of churches or that network of churches or this belief in this area or this belief in this, as long as you believe the way I do about something that is particularly dear to me, then we can be close and I might actually have you over for dinner. Really, I want you to consider, look at all the people you've had for dinner in your house in the last three years. I'm going back three years because I'm hoping at some point in three years you actually did have people over for dinner. Were they just people who thought exactly like you did? Were they people that it was easy to hang out with? Is your affinity for them less about the fact that you both have the gospel and more about the fact that you both see baptism in the same way or the Trinity in the same way or church leadership in the same way? Are you really like this author who just is so smart and blows your mind and is so far above this loser author over here? We're not called to be arrogant. Is this the case for you? When you meet a Christian from another church or a Christian from another country, are you like Paul eager to hear from them and be mutually encouraged? Do you want to spend time with other believers? Or are you more naturally suspicious? Are you more naturally put off? Are you more naturally arrogant? Maybe you're a church snob. Right? This is the trickiest thing about eldering and pastoring to me. I want to lead a church full of people who absolutely love their church. I want you to be all in. I want you to be consumed with the opportunities and the things that God's doing, and I want you to be encouraged, and I want you to be consistent, and I want you to view this as, a massive, as the massive blessing that it is. But when you meet someone from another church, I don't want you to be a church snob. I don't want you to... He, like, when they start talking about what they're doing at their church, you actually don't care. You just want to talk over them because I'm doing something better at my church. Don't be a church snob. It's a tricky balance. You should love the blessing that this is because of God's work and a bunch of fragile and common people. However, when you meet someone who starts to tell you about something that they're doing in the gospel, it's not appropriate to what the gospel does to us to have this immediate sort of suspicious put off like, yeah, that's cute. You know what we do on Wednesdays? <laughs> oh, that's cute. That's fun. We did that back in 1991. Um, we do this now. We don't have that arrogance. It's certainly not an effect of the gospel. If we're genuinely thankful for other believers, we will be willing to take risks and make sacrifices for them. We'll be less rushed in our conversations and in fact, we'll pray for them. That's our second thing. Faith means praying for both the unfaithful and the faithful. So faith means being genuinely thankful for other believers. And faith means praying for both the unfaithful and the faithful. Paul, according to Romans 11, is an apostle to the Gentiles. He was charged by Christ. He was going about his business and Jesus interceded and said, you're going to be an apostle to the Gentiles. He doesn't want to build on anyone else's foundation. He's a frontline guy who wants to reap a harvest among those who are not currently faithful. Paul is very interested in the lost, but he doesn't want to go to Rome and focus only on the lost. This is so interesting. We, this is why it's important to dig in and understand the history and understand the calling and understand the timeline, because he is a, a guy who is all about evangelism, and what he would be the guy who would be going to the park or going to Walmart and saying, who can I have a conversation with about Jesus? But he's not wanting to go to Rome to focus only on the lost. Rest assured, Paul cares about the lost, but not at the expense of the health of the saved. This is not an either-or issue. When the gospel of Jesus Christ affects you, you are not either the kind of Christian who focuses on the lost or the kind of Christian who focuses on other believers. You're not either the kind of Christian who's evangelistic, or you're the unevangelistic, inward-focused church person. It's never been an either-or issue. This has always been, currently is, and always will be a both-and issue. The effect of the gospel on the life of a believer is that when the gospel affects you, it changes you so that you are interested in both 
Those who are lost and those who are saved. Some of the most arrogant people I've ever engaged in my life will choose one of the sides wholeheartedly. They'll try to relieve the tension by letting go of one and holding on to another. Try to relieve the retention by letting go of this and holding on to the other. We're not people who are about one or the other. It's a both and. It always has been a both and. The gospel changes us in this way. We have a higher regard for all people. Right? Right? Is there anyone that could cross your path that's not worth your time to engage? To either share something with that they've never heard or to encourage them to continue in what they have heard? We have a higher regard for all people. The reason is this. Remember, when we're talking about gospel, we're talking about creation, fall, redemption, and consummation, right? So how does the gospel change us? Well, the gospel opens our eyes to everyone's created purpose. The gospel opens our eyes to everyone's sin problem, everyone's fall into sin. The gospel opens our eyes to everyone's only hope of redemption and consummation. Sometimes I've I've witnessed that when people come to faith, they look with disdain on those who they used to run with. Almost judgmental disdain. Like, we did drugs together, now I'm a Christian and you're a loser. Or, we just didn't care about the church stuff, but now I do, and because you don't, you're not worth my time. Sometimes when people come to faith, they look with disdain on those they used to run with, who they used to spend time with, those who they used to have shared, um, shared interests with. But it wasn't the case for Paul. I don't want you to turn there. I mean, we're still in Romans 1. I'm not making you turn much because I want you to listen real closely. But in Romans 9, Paul says, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off for the sake of my kinsmen according to the flesh. He says that. He says, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off for the sake of my kinsmen according to the flesh. What Paul says in that statement is, I used to be a Jew, and, and I didn't, I, when I first heard about Christ, I didn't like Christ. I didn't like the, the, the concept, the thought. I, I wasn't affected by the gospel. But in time, he changed, and he doesn't look back at his Jews and say, you losers need to get on board. His view is I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off for the sake of my kinsmen according to the flesh. What Paul is saying is if there was a love that existed where I could go to hell and it meant you would be saved, I would do it. Paul sees it as such an important thing to continue to minister to both Jew and Gentile, to save, to lost, to everyone he engages, that he looks at his fellow Jews, his kinsmen according to the flesh, and he says, if I could forfeit the greatest gift that I have ever had, I would forfeit it for you. But that's not how the gift works. That's not how love works. That's not how evangelism works. But that's where his heart is. He deeply desires to bring people along rather than leave them behind and move forward without them. That's an effect of the gospel in Paul's life. So his prayers are for his kinsmen according to the flesh and his kinsmen according to the spirit. So our prayers are for those who are just made of the same flesh as us and for those who have been changed by the gospel and whom we share the same spirit. A proper focus on both is where we'll find gospel balance in how we view other people. The third thing, and this is the one where I've been interested in, wondering how it will hit people. I, I, you, know, you, you have sermon details that you come to and you're like, I don't know if anyone's going to be affected by this. But there's always the possibility that someone's going through something where this, and this has been one of those things that's been on my heart and my mind as I'm praying through this thing, I wonder, I wonder where people are. But the third thing is that faith submits to God's will and God's timing. Faith submits to God's will and God's timing. Jeremiah Burroughs says that Christian contentment is a rare jewel. That so many of us have this outward demeanor of contentment for where God has us, but our souls have a voice that is anything but content, and that God can hear the voice of our souls. Where we're glad-handing on Sunday morning, yeah, God's good all the time, all the time, God's good, yay, yay, yay. And then we're, we're like, I hate this place. I can't wait to get somewhere else. I hate this job. These people annoy me. And inward, we have this voice that's not so pleasant. It's good 
to want change. It's good to pray about the future. It's good to have goals and ambitions. It's really good to be wise stewards of our time and our resources. But the gospel makes us into the kind of people that can have significant goals and weighty ambitions, the kind of people that genuinely want things to be better without ever becoming discontent and complacent where God has planted us right now in the present. This this will help us so much in persevering in our faith. We should always want things to be better. We should always want things to be getting more holy. We should always want to be improving. But that doesn't make us discontent where we are. Maybe you wish your church was different. Maybe you wish your job was different. Maybe you wish your marriage was different. Or your friends were different. Or your friendships were different. Or your children were different. Or your finances were different. It's good to want to make improvements and increases in overall health across the board. It's good to have ambitions where you're not just cool with things being sorry and sad. It's good to want to improve. By God's design, we cannot walk through a door unless he's opened it. By God's design, we cannot walk through a door unless he has opened it. One of the biggest freeing things for me in ministry has been that realization that you can't make up anyone's mind for them, right? Oh, how much easier it would be in life if we could just make up each other's minds, right? Like, man, that person's being this way, and they need to be more this way, and make up their mind for them. But you can't do that. That's why we have relational conflicts, and that's why peacemakers are blessed people, and that's why we aim to resolve things, and that's why we don't take the supper if we're sideways with someone, because there's always something to be working on, and I can't make up your mind for you, and you can't make up my mind for me. We can't change other people. We can encourage them, we can share with them, but we can't just snap our fingers and change. We can't make our children immediately more obedient. We can't make ourselves immediately more patient. It takes time to work through these things. The gospel has an effect that plays out over the course of the lifetime of the individual through a process that's called sanctification. So we can't walk through a door unless God opens it. So when he has given us hopes and desires, but not yet opened the door for us to pursue or realize those hopes or desires, we do not impose our will upon God. And we do not assume that we know what God's will will be before he's revealed it. We submit our will to his completely and continue to serve faithfully in the opportunities where he has opened the door now. But when he opens the door, when God provides a way, the fourth thing is faith goes. Faith has feet. When he opens that door, when Paul gets the green light to go to Rome, guess what Paul's going to do? He's going to go to Rome. It doesn't matter how he's going to get there. He's just going to claw on Paul and make it happen if God opens that door for him. Because faith goes. Faith has feet. Over and over again, God prompts us to put others' needs before our own. Sometimes it's for fellow believers. Sometimes it's for the lost. Either way, it is not possible to put others' needs ahead of your own from the safety of your own living rooms and studies. It is not possible for faith to go and have feet, for you to put others' needs before your own from the safety and convenience of your own living rooms and studies. The very nature of faith going means that faith is leaving, right? Just go with me on this. If faith is going, then faith is leaving. Sometimes you leave the comfort of what is familiar. Sometimes you leave the safety of what is known. Sometimes you leave the convenience of what you've grown to prefer over time. Ideally, we're the kind of people who exist in a place where God has already opened a door and only leave because he's opening another one and he's making it clear through the work of the Spirit. What that means is the application for us is faith goes and faith has feet, but when, it, when it's landed where God wants us, It's about being completely present wherever God has opened a door and placed us. Being completely present wherever God has opened a door and placed you. You are where you are because for some reason God has you there. It's about being completely present in that place. The grass is not always greener on the other side. That's that's not a biblical anecdote. We 
are completely present with our children. We're completely present with our spouse. We're completely present when we're at work. We're completely present if we're hanging out with people that we don't relate to at all, but maybe either they're lost and we can share gospel or get to know them, and maybe down the road we have conversations. Maybe it's saved people that you just don't see eye to eye with on a lot. I prayed for the Methodists this morning. Did anyone realize that? (laughs) We're so different, right? We engage others, and we are fully, completely present where we are because we're not going to impose our will on God's to try to get somewhere else. The fifth thing is that when, when faith goes, it never abandons the gospel. The church in Rome is full of believers who need to continue in the gospel. So Paul's view of Rome isn't, you know what, I'm going to bring you the gospel because you don't have it. He's saying, you were converted and changed by the gospel and you need to continue in the gospel. So when I come to you, guess what I'm going to bring you? The gospel. Because that's the way it is. We don't ever grow out of it. The church in Rome is full of believers who need to continue in the gospel or they will not continue at all. We don't grow out of it. The gospel is not something that you just need for children. On our Wednesday night study, we were having a discussion about the, the dynamic where so many grow up in the church and then they turn 18 or whatever, they go off to college, they get a job, and they don't darken the doors again until their mid-30s when they have a kid because their kid needs the gospel. Their kid needs to grow up in church. It's not just for children. It's for everyone. We don't grow out of it. I was trying to think of an example, an illustration. In this time of year, we're always giving antibiotics to our children, right? For the love, someone's always sick, right? And you don't usually give the antibiotic to them for like six months, right? If you are, stop and call the doctor. It's usually like 10 days. That's how it plays out. The gospel is not like an antibiotic. It's not the kind of thing that as it works, you need it less and less over time. It's not the way the gospel works. It's not the kind of thing that you need less and less over time. It's really more like Dr. Pepper, right? The more of it you get, the more of it you need, and ideally over time you can't function without it. That's usually how it plays out. So I don't want to present the gospel as some kind of morbid addiction. However... We are called to be completely dependent upon the gospel. The more of it we get, the more of it we want. We can never get enough of it. And as we continue, we'll not continue rightly if we don't continue in the gospel. We need it. We don't grow out of it. We don't transition to something higher. It starts with the gospel and we continue in the gospel. So when faith goes, it never abandons the gospel. And the last thing, number six, is because of the gospel... The faithful are teachable. Teachability is something that I used to see as a weakness. It's so arrogant. Early on in ministry, I remember thinking teachability was sort of like saying, I don't know the answer. Right? You don't want to be that guy. You better always have something to say. You better always be able to stand firm and proclaim truth. Or maybe just shut your mouth and listen. Right? Teachability. Teachability is something that Um, as we grow in the gospel, we should grow in our appreciation of what that is and what that means. If God never intended for any of us to be lone rangers, then every one of us should always be teachable, right? A person with gospel faith is a person you can learn from. It doesn't matter if they're a wise old sage or a young baby Christian. A person who has gospel faith is a person that you can learn from. God's design is that we are always growing in Christ's likeness. We should always be teachable. If we make a decision that we don't really need to be a part of a church, that we don't really need to hear preaching, that we don't really need to hear teaching, that we don't really need fellowship and discipleship with other peoples, that we don't really need accountability, there's a good chance that you are not being teachable. And that's not an effect of the gospel. It's an effect of turning from the gospel. It's good to be informed. It's good to have answers. But as long as you're on this side of of eternity, you need to be teachable. I think that's why God calls us to be quick to hear, right? Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Because there's something we need to hear. There's something that can be heard that will contribute to our sanctification to make us more Christ-like. But you will never grow in Christ-likeness if you turn your ears off 
to what others might have to say that would encourage and inform you. God's design is that we're always growing in Christ-likeness. That means we all have to be teachable at all times. So be quick to hear. As we transition to the supper, you can turn over to 1 Corinthians with me, chapter 11. On the night of, before Jesus' death, he modeled all of these things for us. It's really incredible when you look at what Paul did, and it's like, oh, Paul was just doing what Jesus did. Yeah, that's the point of Christianity. We listen to Christ. We look to Christ, and we try to model what Christ is doing every day in every decision and every conversation. And so on the night before Jesus died, he gathered in a room with a small, faithful group of unimpressive men. He had entrusted them with the gospel. He was thankful for them. He prayed for them. And then Paul states in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup, the supper, after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. He says, that's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So the encouragement as we distribute the elements here in just a few minutes is to examine yourselves. Consider those six application points that we talked about this morning. Consider the things that Paul modeled for us as a guy who was affected and changed by the gospel. Examine yourselves. Are you thankful for other people? Are you thankful for other believers? Do you pray and have an interest in both the lost and the saved? Have you become an either-or person when you should have always been a both-and person? Do you submit to God's will and God's timing? Or are you the kind of person that likes to kick the door open before God's opened it? Have you abandoned the gospel? Are you teachable? Those are the things that I want you to consider as the Scripture tells us to examine ourselves. If you have no plan to obediently respond to the gospel, the biblical encouragement is to repent and follow Christ, to consider your ways and turn from them. But if not, don't take the supper. You don't want to drink judgment upon yourself. So what we have here in the scriptures as we close is a really merciful warning and a really robust invitation. The warning is, if you're not going to do anything about what you've heard, don't take the supper. If you're not going to examine yourself and see if, if you're living in, in light of the gospel, don't take the supper. However, if you are, if you're changed by the gospel, if you trust Jesus Christ and you want to grow in these things and move in these things, caring about other people, praying for both the saved and the lost, going when God opens the door, but being completely content in, in when he doesn't, being completely present wherever you are and teachable, then it's a really robust invitation to take the supper this morning. So I'm going to pray and encourage you guys as we distribute the elements to examine yourselves. Lord, we come to you now. And uh, I started the morning off praying for truth, that we would see and hear and stick to the things that are true, that we wouldn't just be motivated by guilt, but that we'd be motivated by truth. And so right now, Lord, as we hear your scriptures... And as we examine ourselves in regards to how the gospel should be changing and affecting us, 
I pray for honesty. I pray that as we distribute these elements, Lord, that there would be an honest examination that's going on throughout this room, considering if we, in fact, are going to submit to and are currently submitting to the gospel. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. All these ideas and possibilities that we considered this morning, I would never come up with them on my own. Um, Your ways are so much higher than our ways. And we humble ourselves before you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.